0: Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49%, based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st,
1: 2024. Terms
0: and more at applecard.com.
1: It's the overshadowing of the Cinco de Mayo. Everybody always assumes the Cinco de Mayo is a, the Independence Day, and it's been so commercialized, and people kind of like assume that that's it. So then everybody forgets the actual September
2: 16th. People decorate their homes and the towns and people put flags and people get together. And it's a huge celebration. It's like the 4th of July here.
0: Probably most of you listeners have never heard reference to September 16th because in the U.S., at least, it's Cinco de Mayo, the 5th of May, that
3: inspires tequila-fueled partying. But, and... This is never normally the case. This is an example of where Americans are kind of getting it wrong about another culture.
0: Right. Cinco de Mayo celebrates a military victory over Napoleon's French army in 1862. And it is, yes, celebrated in Mexico, but it's celebrated with a military
3: parade. It's not a huge deal. September 16th, on the other hand. That's the real national holiday. Mexican Independence Day. And with a national holiday comes... Holiday food.
4: Traditional dish to have during September 16th is the Chile nogada because of the colors of the reds and the greens and the whites, and it's in that season is when you have the best chiles. Chile's
0: and nogada is a dish of chiles stuffed with meat, dried fruits, and nuts. It's topped with a creamy white walnut sauce, and it's sprinkled with pomegranates and
3: herbs. It's very delicious, and it's green, red, and white like the flag. But it's not the only delicious thing at your typical Independence Day party. Mexicans will make lots of antojitos. Those are little snack foods like empanadas and tamales. And those will likely include something that is perhaps the true national dish of Mexico, mole.
4: You know, mole is always around. Mole is a dish that's there to celebrate life and to celebrate death. It is one of those dishes that are, that it's just always going to be there. This episode is all about that party
3: essential, Mole. And this podcast is Gastropod, the podcast that looks at food through the lens of science and history. I'm Nicola Twilley. And I'm Cynthia Graber. And right now, I am
0: dreaming about the mole I ate basically every day I was in Oaxaca in the south of Mexico. But for those of you not familiar with mole, it's an indigenous dish. Or is it? Okay, but it's a sauce. Well, that part is not clear-cut either. Wait, but at least it's Mexican. Yes, And also, no. This sounds like a Gastropod episode to me, and it is. But before we celebrate Mexican independence with a generous helping of mole mysteries, we have our own anniversary to celebrate.
3: Yes, if you don't know it by now, you will never ever know it, but I'm going to tell you again anyway, it's our birthday. That's right, Gastropod is turning five this month
0: and as you all know by
3: now that means we are spending this month celebrating and you are invited we're making a special birthday episode next episode so stay tuned and you know not to be pushy but if you do want to get us a special birthday gift now would be the time We've got a super special prize for anyone who donates between now and the end of this month. Just go to gastropod.com support. We'll be offering this special birthday present for all of you, and
0: of course for us, until the end of September. And if you're a longtime Gastropod supporter already, don't worry, we haven't forgotten about you. We have a special present for you, too, in honor of our birthday.
3: Plus... Next episode we're going to be telling you all about some super cool new Gastropod merch. Lots of you have asked us if we were ever going to make Gastropod t-shirts and swag and now we're five, we feel like we're ready. So flex
1: those credit cards. My name is Fernando Lopez.
3: Hi, my name
2: is Paulina Lopez. And I am Brisa Lopez.
1: We're at Galega in the heart of Koreatown on Olympic in Normandy, 3014 West Olympic.
3: And so are we. Gale is like the temple of mole in Los Angeles. We couldn't make an episode about mole
0: without visiting. The siblings can't remember the first time they ate mole. It's always been a constant in their lives.
2: But Paulina has one particularly vivid childhood memory of mole. Our baptism. In our
3: baptism, there was Mole. Um, which my cousin fell into a, a big part of it. Let's give some context here. In Mexico, it's not uncommon to wait to have your baptism party until your kids are a little older. Paulina was five when she and her little sister Brisia had their joint baptism party, and it was a serious party.
4: Just to give you an idea, an average-sized party in Oaxaca, if you have a baptism or a wedding, if you invite 300 people, that's a small gathering. My cousin got married a couple years ago. He had 1,200 people at his wedding. So you can just imagine the amounts of food.
0: Honestly, I can't quite imagine the amount of food necessary for hundreds and hundreds of people. But I can imagine that there would be a bathtub-sized bucket of mole and dozens and dozens of kids.
4: And kids run and kids hang out and kids trip. And sometimes you land on a bucket of mole. Uh, what? This Sounds funny, but actually kind of bad. Is the mole not hot? It was kind of hot. Yeah, it was hot. It wasn't burning. It wasn't burning, burning, but it was hot, yeah.
2: They, they up just, gave, <laughs> a, they just put, gave him a bath. They cooked him up. <laughs> they just cooked him up.
1: We ate them. We ate him that
2: day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and it was the highlight of our baptism. And they just coast them down. <laughs> <laughs> the cousin was fine.
3: The mole was fine. The party was great. A few years after this whole cousin bucket of mole incident, the Lopez family moved to LA. No connection.
1: Our dad, Fernando Lopez, He actually moved here in 93 from Oaxaca, and he moved here by himself, and we were all back in Oaxaca, and during that year, my mom would go around town and go to the markets and buy clayudas and chapulines and chiles, and she would ship it over. And he would sell these things door to door.
0: One of the things he was selling was bags of mole. And his food was a huge hit among the Oaxacan community in Southern California. California has the most Oaxacans
3: outside of Mexico. While he was making his rounds, Fernando Lopez Sr. often drove past a restaurant at the corner of Olympic and Normandy. It would open as one thing and then close again and then open and then close. And he
1: said to himself, like, you know, if... If this restaurant comes to the market one more time, I'm just going to take it because I really want to do a Oaxacan restaurant. People told him that was a horrible idea. Everybody said, Friend, you can't do a Oaxacan restaurant. You can't do just Oaxacan food. Nobody knows what it is. You, you have to, if you do Oaxacan food, you have to at least do maybe Oaxacan food and maybe burgers or Oaxacan food and tacos or Oaxacan food and pizza. You have to have something that's memorable or that people recognize. Otherwise, you're going to lose all your money. And he said, you know what? I have faith. And what I do in and, and my community, and I understand how close my community is to the food, how important it is to us. And he saw it you know, within himself that if he missed his food and his culture so much, every other Oaxacan in L.A. must miss it the same.
3: So he opened his
5: restaurant, and at the heart of his restaurant was mole. Now, it is not one dish. That's the only complication there. <laughs> the mole, there are many moles. And, I mean, you go for the seven famous ones in Oaxaca, but there are actually many more in Oaxaca. And then you go to the Mole Poblano and the Mole en Guerrero and Mole de Hico. So they are everywhere. And each one has its own characteristics and its own flavor. But, yeah, I think, you know, Mole really defines the... um, I guess, the complexity of our culture in Mexico.
0: Ileana de la Vega is a Mexican chef who owns El Naranjo in Austin, Texas. So we've been talking about mole for a while, and now it's time for some clarification. What is it?
4: If you were to compare it to, I guess, music is just like a beautiful song that's always playing in the background, that you that it's not only until it's turned off that you realize, oh my God, why is it not there?
3: That's beautiful, but I still find myself asking, what is it? What is mole? That's a question I ask myself a lot. It's not clear it is
6: a thing or a
3: dish. This is Rachel Loudon. She's a wonderful historian and food writer whose most recent book is called Cuisine and Empire, Cooking in World History. The classic definition dating from the early
6: 20th century is a thick sauce made of three or four components. Ground chilies, ground nuts and seeds, ground spices, something acid, something sweet, something bitter, and a thickener. And it turns into a very
4: complex but harmonious sauce. That combination of fire and smoke that really that really is like very much a staple of oaxaca it that's what mole is
1: i guess if you don't roast the things and you know if you don't roast the chile if it has no chiles i would say it's not a mole i don't know just in it if it doesn't make you feel good (laughs) i would say if it doesn't make you feel good it's not a mole Definitely.
3: Okay, so mole makes you feel good. It's like music that you miss when it's not there. And it's basically a sauce, but a sauce that has contained three or four things. chilies and vegetables spices, and then a thickener like ground nuts or tortilla.
0: As Ileana said, there are a lot of different versions of mole that you can make with these basic elements.
3: Mole rojo, mole negro, mole poblano, mole de guerrero. Sandra Aguilar Rodriguez is associate professor of Latin American history at Moravian College in Pennsylvania, and she took us even further down the mole maze.
7: Yeah, so there are uh, a A lot of varieties, probably the, like I could identify easily 10, which are the most common ones. So just in Oaxaca, you have like seven different kinds of mole. In Puebla, there might be two or three. But what I think is interesting is also that each family may have their own recipe.
0: Fernando couldn't even guess how many varieties of mole there might be.
1: I mean, if you look at a town, even just black mole, if you go to one town, every family makes it differently. So there's still black mole, but they're all, you know, there's 100 recipes in one town. And, and then you get into it, the outskirts of the town and that becomes a little more different and you're is that really black mole anymore there's a lot of shades it's a spectrum of mole here we have you know mole negro mole rojo coloradito estofado amarillo verde so we have the six moles here in
3: as was our professional duty we tasted them all and mole is really hard to describe so the coloradito That's more orangey, and we had it on chips, almost like a salsa. But it's more rich and smoky, almost creamy. We ate the mole negro, black mole, spread thickly with cheese on a
0: huge tortilla called a It's a little sweeter than the coloradito, and it has a stronger flavor of chocolate. Chocolate is actually a really common ingredient in Oaxacan savory dishes. But really,
3: they were all delicious. And the thing I wondered is, with so many moles, how do you choose?
1: Black is my favorite. You know, if I don't eat it, in like uh every month or so i'll dream about it and i'll come over and i'll eat it
2: mind i i go back and forth between mole negro and coloradito because i think oh i love mole negro but then i have some enchiladas i'm like no i love coloradito and then i go back and i had a tamal de mole i'm like no it's it's the black ones
4: okay so if i'm having a tamal it's definitely gonna be a black mole if i'm having enchiladas i'm definitely having coloradito um, if I want to have an empanada, 100% amarillo.
3: So there are dozens of different mole sauces, one for every kind of dish and every mood. But there are also other kinds of moles too. There is mole de la olla, the
6: mole from the pot, which is a soup, vegetable and meat soup with ground chiles in it. And just to really complicate things, there are also huevos moles. Um, mole
3: eggs. But like we said, mole is usually a sauce and all of these moles taste different. So Rachel told us there are three major elements to a mole, the veggies, the spices and the thickener. But there's actually another really essential element, which is
5: time. This is not your 30 minute dinner. Making a mole, it's a labor intensive work. So if it's like the mole negro, I mean, it takes for me here at the restaurant three days to make it. Juliana starts with six different chiles for her mole
0: negro. There's a black one that's native to Oaxaca called chiluacle Negro. There are others that aren't black, but then she roasts them all and they all become black.
5: So once you have all those, you let them rest for a couple of days. And then you continue working with the rest of the ingredients. Let's say like, for example, tomatoes, tomatillos, onion and garlic. You dry roast them until they are blackened and then you save them uh, separately. And she's still not done
3: because then she has to take her thickeners, in this case plantains and bread and seeds and nuts,
5: and she has to fry them. Then Ileana dry roasts all of the spices that she's going to use in the mole. Once you have all of that, then you begin grinding and start frying that paste that comes out. And everything has to be also strained, so no pieces of chunks or anything, so it has to be a smooth sauce. Once it's done, all of that work... Then you begin to reduce it, you know, cook it for a long time. Then you season it with uh, sugar, chocolate and salt. So, and then it will be ready.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know,
5: you could order pizza. This is why mole is not everyday food. If it's a birthday and you want something special, you can make a mole.
6: I remember a friend when we were in Guanajuato, which is in central Mexico. He had a restaurant. His mother was a very good cook. And at Christmas, she would make... Mollet. It's very time-consuming, particularly the more complex ones. And our friend's sister said, "Molly is great the first day. It's okay the second day, but the end of the week, I have had mollet. I have had it up to here. Because when you make it, you're going to make it in quantity, and it lasts a long
2: time. Um, and you would make it there for for celebrations. Celebrations like Paulina's baptism, or my grandma, you know, taking me to weddings. In Oaxaca, if you've been to a traditional wedding, and you know, they serve you these big pots of mole, that you actually afterwards they uh, give you buckets, so you can take the buckets home, and then the next day you make, you know, tamales de mole or enmoladas, or you know, it's a celebration dish. And also, I would say it's also a community dish because like she was saying, people come together in celebrations of this kind, weddings, you know, deaths, baptisms, and they all make it together. It's not just one person. It was a multi-day, often multi-person process. Mole is genuinely community food. In my mind, when I think about mole, I think about my grandma. I think about my family.
3: I think about all those memories that, that we created as, as children around mole. That's why even though Golagetsa has six kinds of mole on tap every day of the week, Paulina doesn't eat it all the time. Even though we sell it at the restaurant, I, I go back to, you know, what are we
2: celebrating? Are we celebrating something? Then let me eat mole. Because I don't want to lose that that feeling with it. But yeah, when I eat it, I'm like, why why do I wait so long to eat it? It's
3: so good. So now we know what mole is. I mean, it's a lot of things, but I feel like I have a little bit more of a handle on it. (laughs) Okay, but so where does it come from?
0: Terms and more at applecard.com.
6: Fox Creative.
8: This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I did it. <laughs> Like I
3: said, Rachel Loudon is a historian, but her first encounter with the history of mole was a story printed on a placemat. We were visiting Mexico. I was
6: interested in food and I had heard that you had to eat mole poblano. And we went to a restaurant, and of course they had the statutory placemat with the story of Mole Poblano being invented in a convent in the 18th century. This
0: is the Mole legend of the nuns. Sandra told us a slightly longer version of that story.
7: In the, the sort of like origin of this dish, or the sort of like um, narrative goes that this was First cooked in a convent, so that the nuns were, and most of them of the Spanish descent, basically came up to create this uh, meal. Some will argue that it was an outcome of a mistake, that they threw up a lot of the spices to the pot and then they didn't know how to kind of like suddenly make another dish, so they tried to kind of like work with what they already had. So, that of course is the legend of how mole was first cooked.
1: That to me just sounds like propaganda. You know, I mean, I don't understand how somebody can create mole overnight and come to this thing that... I mean, when you think about it, you look at in the ingredients and you see the history of the, the way the ingredients move throughout the Americas and the continents through trade with these Mesoamerican cultures.
3: So there's some skepticism and some mixed messaging, honestly, because the nuns in the story are Spanish. In Mexico, yes, but of Spanish descent. But when you encounter mole in Mexico today you're kind of given the impression that it's an indigenous dish.
0: In rural Mexico, and principally in Oaxaca, chocolate
8: is an important ingredient used to season the exquisite traditional dish, mole oaxaqueño.
3: So that doesn't make sense. How can it be indigenous but also be invented by Spanish nuns? Rachel says that despite the nun story
0: printed on her placemat, the idea that mole is an indigenous dish is pretty standard in Mexico today.
6: It is certainly true that probably long before the Spanish arrived in Mexico, Mexican or indigenous women were grinding chiles and tomatoes and other substances, as well as maize for the daily bread, on a grindstone.
3: What we don't really know is whether they were turning these ground-up chiles and tomatoes and masa into a sauce. But it's possible. So at least as far as ingredients go, the idea that mole has indigenous roots isn't totally wrong.
7: Key ingredients like tomato and chocolate and um, uh, as well as turkey, because it was prepared traditionally with turkey, are had an origin in in the Americas, and of course all the chilies there that connects this dish with the pre-Columbian world. But
3: sorry, the classic spices in a mole are things like cinnamon and cloves and cumin, and then there are thickeners like ground almonds and sesame seeds, and those are from the old world. They're not native to Mexico. So what gives? How did all these non-indigenous ingredients get mixed up in traditional mole? The answer to that starts more than five centuries ago. Here's
0: the thing. When I go to Mexico, I want to eat all the delicious local foods. But that wasn't the attitude back in the 1500s when the Spanish first set foot there.
6: When the Europeans arrived in the Americas, the last thing they really wanted to do was to taste the cuisine in New Spain, the cuisine of the indigenous. They were all what I call dietary determinists. They really did believe that you were what you ate. And they did not necessarily want to change who they were. In fact, they were frightened of changing who they were, which was what would happen if they ate the food in the place they encountered.
0: And so the Spaniards really loaded up their boats for the cross-Atlantic voyage.
6: They brought their agriculture. They brought their horses and their cows and their sheep and their goats and their pigs. They bought their wheat. They bought uh, their spices and their fruits They bought the way they cooked and they bought
3: their eating utensils and their recipes and their whole idea about food. At the time, the dominant aesthetic in Spain and much of Europe was the Baroque. You hear about it in art and architecture, but Sandra says it infused cooking, too.
7: Baroque basically meaning these... Amalgamation of a lot of elements that ended up creating a very sort of like complex pieces of music, of art, of architecture. So basically it's the saturation of things. There is no void in in Baroque art. This is exactly what mole is. It's super complicated, super saturated. Mole particularly has all these ingredients that go between 10 to 30 ingredients in the preparation of this dish. So that is the element that clearly comes from Spanish culture. So the aesthetic of mole, that style of super intense sauce, that's Spanish.
3: And so are a bunch of the ingredients, like I
0: said. But wait, Rachel thinks the origins of mole go back even further in time and even farther away from Mexico.
6: It
3: has deep roots,
6: I think, in the Middle East. And I'd like to emphasize that particular
3: part of the tradition. At first, I was like, Middle East? But it makes more sense once you remember that large parts of Spain—actually, almost the entire Iberian Peninsula—was once part of a giant caliphate ruled by North African Muslims called the Moors.
0: And the Moors brought their traditions with them to Spain, some of those traditions, of course, being their dishes, which hearkened all the way back to what's now Iraq. To
6: go back, though, to mole specifically, what you find in the cookbooks of medieval Baghdad And the cookbooks of medieval Al-Andalus, which is what that part of Spain was called in the Middle Ages, are a lot of sauces that are also purees that are made with ground spices, with ground nuts, with acid elements. Uh, What they lack, of course, is the chiles and the tomatoes, but the general structure of making a sauce by grinding nuts and seeds and spices together with some kind of acidic element and some kind of liquid is
3: central to medieval Islamic cuisine. Rachel has actually spent a couple of decades tracing this complicated origin story from Malay all the way back to the golden age of Islam. And she admits she was worried her theory would be really controversial. I mean, Mole is such an iconic dish in Mexico.
6: When I first published on the European or, in fact, Middle Eastern origins of much of Mexican cuisine, I thought I would be cut off at the knees by my Mexican friends. We were living in Mexico at the time. To my great surprise, everybody said, oh, That's really interesting. We think you're
0: right. So it looks like the mole mystery is solved. Indigenous ingredients and techniques mixed with Spanish ingredients and techniques that trace their roots all the way back to the Middle East.
3: And that placemat nun story, that's clearly BS, right?
0: Well, actually, Rachel says there might even be some truth to that nun legend.
6: Nuns, you know, in the American and British imagination, perhaps, are these timorous, cowering people who spend their time praying. You have to get rid of that notion for the convents in colonial Mexico – the convents were real powerhouses. Many of them
3: acted as mortgage banks. They had large land holdings. These were some smart sisters. They came from rich families. They didn't want to get married and become the property of a man. And they saw being a nun as a way to actually have a career and own their own property. And among that property, well, there were people.
0: They had slaves, or they had servants. And while the nuns were Spanish, the people who worked for them voluntarily or not, they were indigenous, and the nuns ran the whole show.
6: They took on themselves the business of making their convents very profitable. Now, from their land holdings, they're getting in the nuts, the chiles, the tomatoes, everything that goes into making a mole. So the
3: nuns are basically running a commercial kitchen, supervising their indigenous servants or slaves. There are about 10 servants or slaves to every nun in a convent who would Add
6: value to the ingredients coming into the convent from the landholdings by turning them into sweets or mollets, and they would then sell these to interested customers who wanted fine cuisine. So, this was on the one side a business, but on the other side, it was also a spiritual exercise because the idea was you were taking raw, uncooked food which was like a raw, uncooked, novice nun, and turning it into a fine and elegant and sophisticated and cultured dish, just as the nun herself, as she moved through the period from being a novice to becoming the mother superior, gained in stature and culture and spiritual depth.
0: So actually, the convents do make sense as maybe the place where all these traditions and ingredients might have come
3: together to create this now incredibly famous, time-consuming, and really Baroque dish. Mole mystery solved. Except I still have one question. How did this hybrid become essentially Mexico's national dish?
6: After the conquest, there are two great moments in Mexican history, independence from
3: Spain and the revolution of
6: the early 20th century.
3: In 1810, Mexico fought and won its War of Independence from Spain.
6: And around the time of independence from Spain, the criollos, the people largely Spanish origin, but of course they all were mixed, in New Spain, want to distinguish themselves as they become a republic from the aristocratic and domineering Spanish of the Spanish peninsula. And they see cuisine as one way to do this. And they begin identifying with local ingredients like chilies and tomatoes and with local vernacular Spanish names for dishes, like perhaps mole. And so that's when it first creeps into the repertoire. But then, by the late 1800s, things changed. Then was a period of Frenchification of Mexican
3: cuisine. So if you wanted to impress someone, you'd cook French food, not local dishes such as mole. Then, a century after independence, there's a revolution. In 1910, Mexicans revolted against their dictatorship to establish a democratic government.
6: And then after the revolution in the early 20th century, when politicians are desperate to try to bring together this country that had been shattered by a really vicious civil war they focus on the theory that Mexico is a country of mestizaje, of mixing, that you have indigenous and European roots. And this is when these legends of mole come in. That's how mole became so famous. It was the ideal dish to show this melding of cultures, bringing all Mexicans together. Yes, it it is, I think, all cuisine is political, and
3: this is particularly political. Mole became more than a dish. It became a symbol. But even so, for most of the 20th century, French food was still top dog. Eliana says even when she was a kid growing up in Mexico City, French food was the fancy food.
5: Nobody ate, you know, like go to a fancy restaurant and eat Mexican food. The same thing if you were having, you know, very important guests, you will cook something French, not something Mexican. Even it could be better, right? But no. That has changed. Now you can invite and be very proud if you are cooking something Mexican. and uh, Because it's very complex food, it's very delicious, and it's not easy. I mean, you have to be a good cook to cook Mexican food, definitely. Today, Mexican food is definitely claiming its place as a rich, varied, and delicious cuisine. And mole plays a starring role. I mean, I think it really encompasses, you know, the mestizo culture that we are. We have, you know, the indigenous roots and plus we have all these ingredients from Europe and techniques, different techniques from, you know, like frying and things like that. So, yeah, definitely it is uh, like the dish of Mexico. That said, this
3: wholehearted embrace of mole is a pretty recent thing. Bricia Lopez told us that mole is fundamentally seen as a dish of the South in Mexico. And the South of Mexico
4: is mostly poorer, and sometimes it's been seen as backwards. I think that if you are from Mexico, especially if you are from Oaxaca, growing in the 70s, 60s, 80s, You know, it's pretty much the same thing as if you were growing up in the 60s and deep south. You know, like there's so much racism and so much classism and so much put down of your culture.
0: Still today in the U.S., Mexican food is often considered kind of cheap food. Going out for a meal at Galagetza isn't super pricey,
4: but you're not ordering dollar tacos. And when people say to me things like, that's really expensive. Like, why do you charge so much for your mole? There's nothing that irritates me the more because when you say that to me, I don't hear your mold is expensive. I hear your culture isn't worth paying for or your culture isn't worth that. Because if you can pay for a handmade pasta with beautiful Marzano tomatoes and it's, you know, and you have no issue, but you don't want to pay for handmade tortillas with corn that's been brought from Oaxaca with a sauce that takes hours and hours of labor and love to make I'm not saying one is worth more than the other one I'm just saying things need to be equalized.
3: Brisia's family's restaurant Goliguetza is a big part of that leveling up.
4: Golagetsa just as like as big as a word it is it has a really really big meaning Um, and it's not just one thing right the word itself if you do a direct translation it means reciprocity to give to receive to share and it's also a tradition in the towns of Oaxaca. So, for example, if somebody was to have a party or a celebration of sorts, a wedding, a baptism, their neighbors would come and gift them, let's say, a sack of beans or a chicken or a goat. And then you would have a little book that was your Galequetz book and you would write down, you know, Mr. So-and-so brought me this for this party. And when he celebrates something, um, whether it's his Kid getting married, or again a quinceañera, then I would come and say, "Oh, I'm gonna return the favor that he did for me."
0: Gulagetsa is also a celebration. It's the name of an actual festival. There are days of dancing in the streets and drinking mezcal and eating lots and lots of food, of course, including mole.
4: And it's really a way for the towns around Oaxaca to share a little bit of who they are to the world. So it's like they're gonna like get set to the world. So then, for for us, you know, like a, this restaurant is a part of who we are to Los Angeles. Our, it's our gift to Los Angeles. It's our way of saying thank you to the city, and you know, really sharing what we love more, which is family, food, and culture, and it's our little Galeguetza Tuole.
3: And as an Angelino, I am very grateful. At first, though, Galeguetza's celebration
0: of all things mole was really just for their fellow Oaxacan expats. That's how Bricia Paulina and
1: Fernando's dad saw it. He grew up just with the community, with the Oaxacan community. And for a long time, it was a Oaxacan restaurant for Oaxacans.
4: They weren't really seeking anything else because my dad always said if I can make someone from Oaxaca happy and reminisce and remember what it's like to have their food, that's really all I want to do. And it wasn't until... Jonathan Gold walked in, wrote about it, that really opened up a restaurant to so many other people that read the Times.
0: For those of you who don't know, Jonathan Gold was an incredibly famous food writer whose reviews were basically love letters to the varied communities and food in Los Angeles. He was
3: and remains, even posthumously, the fairy godfather of L.A.'s immigrant restaurants. He is the reason Angelenos like me know to go to Golagetsa. And lots of us do.
4: But I think that most of our our customers to this day are still Oaxacan natives. We are still really much a family restaurant that is very much celebrated in the Oaxacan community. Gracia and her
0: siblings took us into the kitchen. Like at Ileana's restaurant, their mole takes days to prepare.
4: These are chilas that have been roasted and we've been grinding them. Um, and we use that machine for when we grind our mole spices and we our chile spices.
0: And of course, they use a blender to mix the whole thing together. Ileana makes hers the same
5: way. <laughs> for me, it has been always the way to go. I mean, I know how to use a metate, but uh, definitely I won't be a cook if I need to use it all the time. It's a lot of labor to be kneeling down on the floor and then grinding all the ingredients in a metate. A metate is a grindstone, literally a stone you grind things on. Rachel
3: says it's really the reason mole exists.
6: I think the reason why Mexican cuisine is the way it is, and with mole as its kind of crowning glory, is partly technological. And the technology is the grindstone, the simple grindstone, which is the kind of grindstone where a woman kneels down, and moves a stone backwards and forwards across a lower stone.
0: European and Middle Eastern cooks had abandoned that kind of grindstone for a mortar and pestle, and those just aren't strong enough to make something like mole.
6: But in India and in Mexico, the simple grindstone continues right down to the present. And it is the perfect instrument for making these complex pureed sauces. So the Spanish in New Spain, with their multiple indigenous servants, use the indigenous tool to make molles.
3: And so this kind of hand-ground sauce kept being made for much longer in Mexico than it did in Europe or the Middle East.
6: At the point in the mid-20th century, when finally the people begin to be released from the awful labor of grinding on their knees... Lo and behold, there's electricity and the blender. And you can move smoothly from the grindstone, the metate, to the blender to make your mole. And I think that's an important part of the story.
3: Basically, Rachel says, the grindstone is what allowed mole to emerge but the blender is what has allowed it to survive till today. The blender saves time, yes, but mole is still a
0: lot of work. And so an enterprising Mexican woman named Doña Maria took advantage of blender technology in 1968. She was the one who made mole available to even more home cooks, cooks who didn't have the days they'd need to prepare the ingredients to then put them in a blender.
7: So she was a woman who started preparing like mole in her own kitchen and Everybody loved it, and they said, well, why don't you start commercializing it and selling it? And she did, and it was a success. Doña María became definitely synonymous of mole, particularly in urban areas where Uh, women work and may not have uh, the networks or the time to basically devote two or three days to prepare a dish.
3: Doña María Jard Mole Pace is now in every supermarket in Mexico and in areas where there are lots of Mexicans. It's like buying ragu instead of making pasta sauce.
7: I definitely think there is a big difference in terms of flavor and texture, but well, that's something that if you are far away, it's what you may have handy and you don't have necessarily the skills or the time to prepare everything from Scratch.
0: Even Ileana doesn't mind the pre made stuff
5: if she can find a good paste. Dona Maria isn't the only jarred mole on the market these days. If it's good quality and you know the vendor, then it's okay. Then I can say, okay, I wake up in the morning and thinking, okay, I'm going to serve mole today for lunch, but only if it's a good paste.
4: Fresia says,
5: no one in Oaxaca eats Dona Maria.
4: But that's because you can just go to the corner and find the best thing possible.
3: And one of those best things is actually
0: pre-prepared mole paste made right there in Oaxaca, but it's usually sold in a little plastic
4: bag. It's not a a bad thing. I think that, for example, when you are having a party, you're not going to buy paste for your party. Brizia said
3: when you have a party, you have to do everything from scratch.
4: But people who cook every day... It's so common and there's always a family in town that everyone knows, oh, these women are, are roasting chiles this weekend and they're making the paste this weekend. Oh, let's go buy some so we can have some for, you know, for, for next month or whatever. It's a way of, of living and really it's a way of maintaining the economy going in small towns like that. So buying prepared paste is actually
3: really traditional. And even if you buy the paste, you still have to do some cooking. It's just paste you have to add the broth and the tomatoes, et cetera.
1: Like my sister said, you're gonna make, if you're gonna make it from scratch, you're gonna make a ton of it. But if you're gonna have dinner, you have a few friends over, buy a jar, and you're still adding your own sazon to it. You know, you're still roasting your own tomatoes. You're still doing little things. You can still make it your own.
0: So the blender changed how the mole is made. But what about what it's made from? Are the recipes sacred, or do the Lopez family and Ileana come up with their own spins?
5: Ileana has. She's changed the fat she uses in her mole. When the Spaniards arrived and they brought a lot of ingredients with them, also they came with a fat that they didn't use in pre columbian times. So the, the common fat at that time, it was, uh, you know, the lard. Like Rachel said, the Spanish conquistadors brought their pigs
3: with them. And that meant that pig fat became the normal fat in mole.
0: Eliana decided to break with that tradition. In her first restaurant in Oaxaca, she started making her mole using only vegetable oil,
5: not lard. Because I like the, the clear tastes of and the pure taste of the chiles and the spices and everything. And I think the lard covers up a little bit of that. So I'd rather use, um, you know, a non-flavor oil.
3: But of course, Eliana's messing with an iconic dish here, so there was a little bit of freaking out. Mexicans weren't sure that mole made without lard was actually mole.
5: Well, they they thought like it was, you know, a heresy not to use lard or something like that. And then eventually it was really interesting when I came back and after they almost crucified me for not using lard, eventually I talk to people, very traditional cooks, and what, what fat do you use? And they say, no, vegetable oil, I think is better. It's like, oh, thank you very much. You know, now, <laughs> now they're doing the same thing as I did. But other than that one change, Ileana's not really messing with the mole
0: basics. Neither are the Lopez siblings. No,
2: we don't. We don't mess with the recipe.
4: No. Mole is like baking. When you're making mole, it's almost like you're baking. You know, you need to know exactly how much you're putting. Because you otherwise, it's unbalanced. You know, it's it's really much like that's the way I see it. You know, and my mom, even when she makes it at home, she measures stuff because, you know, it's. And I know a lot of people just say, oh, just put this and this and that. Not when it comes to mole. No, they, they know the ratios of chiles to tomatoes.
3: You don't freestyle a mole. That said, Brissy is open to using her traditional mole in non-traditional ways.
4: For example, this past weekend, I had a barbecue in my house and I just mix our paste with brown sugar, a little bit of salt and pepper. And I made mole ribs and, I, and I, I made a rub and I rubbed all over them. I let them sit for about an hour and then I smoked them for two hours. And they were amazing. And I just keep thinking to myself, oh my gosh, this is something that no one in Oaxaca does because that's, that we don't have, first of all, we don't have a, a, a culture of smoking barbecue, <laughs> right? We do underground pit barbacoa, but we don't have that that American tradition of, you know, smoking ribs on the weekends. So the idea of just marrying those two things, it's its one of these things that you can you get when you mix cultures together.
0: Brescia said the ribs were totally the hit of the party. Traditional ingredient, new way of using it.
4: Basically,
3: at the end of the day, sure, you could make a new kind of mole, but why
5: mess with success? I mean, it's, it's really nothing better that you can do to it. Uh, you can create your own, if you will. You know, that's something that a lot of cooks have done like making a pine nut mole or things like that. So that's, that's okay. But actually, I mean, those flavors have been passed down for generations. They are so tested. So how can you do something better than that? <laughs> it's kind of difficult nowadays. I mean, for more creative than you are, I, I don't think nothing can surpass the, the flavor of a, of a black mole, honestly speaking. They are perfection. They are made to perfection, really. Huge thanks this episode to Bricia, Paulina and Fernanda
3: Lopez for hosting us at Golagetsa and Jennifer Lopez, who helped set up our visit. If you're in L.A., you have no excuse. You need to eat there and sample their heavenly mole for yourself. If you're not in L.A., I pity you. But don't feel too sad. Golagetza sells three kinds of mole paste in jars on their website. We have a link at gastropod.com. And if you really want to get your hands dirty
0: and you have some free time, you can make their mole from scratch yourself. They have a book coming out October 22nd with their mole recipes. It's called Oaxaca, Home Cooking from the Heart of Mexico.
3: Brescia promises they're the real deal.
4: A lot of people always told us, you don't really have to put the right recipe in the book. My answer was always, I just want my children to be able to make these.
0: Thanks also this episode to Ileana de la Vega, chef of El Naranjo in Austin, and to Rachel Loudon, author of Cuisine and Empire, and to Sandra Aguilar-Rodriguez of Moravian College. Links, as usual, on our website, gastropod.com. And special thanks to our amazing former intern, Emily Pontecorvo, who helped produce this episode.
8: Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running.